made it to Friday once again. Congratulations, one and all. You are listening to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. And today is Friday, June 3rd, 2022, the first Friday in June. Cannot even believe how fast this year is cooking by. But we are hard at work, so I guess that makes sense. I know you are too. Hope you can take us with you into your weekend on your run or your bike at the gym wherever you uh, imbibe on New Mexico in Focus. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We appreciate you tuning in as always. And a bunch of heavy stuff for you on this week's show, but some important conversations, again, weighing heavy on many hearts this week, is uh, what now has become a series of additional mass shootings in just the last week. Of course, it kicked off with the shooting at Uvalde, uh, Texas, at Robb Elementary School, where we know so many unnecessary deaths happened. And again, as it often does, has sparked a new debate about gun control, mental health resources, all the things we know that we need to be taking care of to try to break this vicious, vicious cycle, and yet can't seem to get the actual gumption up to do any of these things. We're going to be talking about that a lot in this week's show, and we'll kick things off with our line opinion panelist. It's a good one this week, and they've got some terrific things to say on this front about how we get politics out of the conversation and actually get down to business. So we appreciate Algernon Diamaso joining us. He is a reporter with the Las Cruces Sun News, of course. We have former state senator Diane Snyder. She's a regular and another regular. Sophie Martin, an attorney here in Albuquerque. And uh, again, lots to dive into here. We know that here in New Mexico, there was legislation last year designed to um, hold adults liable for if they uh, do not keep guns and weapons out of the hands of young people. Uh, That is a start, but there is much more that is being discussed, including things like increased security at schools. Is that a viable option? Where is the leadership in all this going to come from? So let's jump right into that conversation again with our line opinion panelists and of course host Gene Grant. Welcome to our line opinion panelists this week. Former New Mexico State Senator Diane Snyder is with us. Attorney Sophie Martin, one of our regulars, of course, and Algernon Damasa, investigative and enterprise reporter at the Las Cruces Sun News. Thank you all for being here. Now, almost immediately after the horror that took place in Uvalde, the conversation around the crisis and gun control turned political. Over the past few decades, gun rights have become so ingrained, especially in conservative identity, it seems any proposed change is met with backlash. And Senator Snyder, let's talk about this, this backlash. What needs to happen for there to just start to have a substantive discussion on gun control? What, what are we missing here just to be able to sit down, talk across the aisle about this? I think part of it, Jean, is the fact that uh, it's usually the people invited to have these discussions are from the extremes of both sides. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's how you get this, the problem solved or steps of recommendation of how some kind of compromise can take place. And I know the word compromise has become a dirty word in many, many areas of this discussion. Mm-hmm. but. 
one of the things that in reading and looking at what's been done both in New Mexico and in other states is I think our top priority, although gun control may well be a part of it, and there are certain things that even I agree with, mm -hmm. but the focus needs to be on the actual security of those children. We should stop hitting each other back and forth about the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is there. It would take a great effort to change it, and that may happen someday. Mm -hmm. But it's not that difficult to make some legislative changes in how things proceed. And we've done that in some states. It hasn't really, it's happened some at the federal level, but I think the main thing is, and, and I'm not quite sure how you do this, is find the moderates on both sides mm -hmm. that can sit down, don't exclude the extremes on each side, but make your group more a group of moderates and, and have a discussion that nothing's off the table, but it's, but nothing's on the table either mm -hmm. that you have. But, and the goal is you must come up with three recommendations that will increase the safety of school children and teachers. Mm -hmm. that's, and you have to focus that that's what your goal is. And I think that can be done. Uh, I know that our country is split in many, many, many ways, this being even one of them. But I think people are capable of making those tough decisions. And I know a large number of Republicans who are strong Second Amendment supporters that are a little more flexible on the of a deeper or more intense scrutiny of people who purchase an AR-15. Mm -hmm. And, and I believe Sophie mentioned to me this morning there, I believe it's New York State, that it's a show the need and is coming up in, in, in Sophie can tell us more about this, mm -hmm. in the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But she, I put her on the spot, sorry. That's all right. But She's I up think, to it. I don't think <laughs> mm -hmm. you, there, I know there are people out there mm -hmm. that we can sit down and come up with yep. three simple things that will protect our children. Mm -hmm. Well said there, Sophie. Um, interesting that uh, Senator Snyder brings up the Supreme Court, because that's something I want to ask you about. I know you know this, but for some folks, this issue of ownership really took off in 2008 when the Supreme Court knocked down that ban on firearms in the District of Columbia, we might that's recall. Right. The, the right? Heller decision that's really right. transformed our country's mm -hmm. uh, interpretation of the Second Amendment. And prior to that, prior to that time, we didn't have what we seem to have now, which is these really entrenched um, views that the Second Amendment means that nothing can be done. I, and I want to touch on something that Diane was sure. talking about um, in terms of school shooting. I think it's really important to recognize that we're not just looking at school shootings. We had the recent grocery store shooting in Buffalo. We had the Pulse nightclub right. shooting. We, you know, we have all of these, all of these, um, these uh, the shooting shooting in Tulsa just the other day. Thank yeah. you. And a second one, as I understand, in Oklahoma as well. Mm -hmm. We have all of these. Uh, I, I hesitate to say incidents because it's much worse than that. Um, but but we are you know if we just focus on the 
the infrastructure, the security in schools, we're missing the bigger picture, which is, yes, the school shootings are tragic and should be prevented, um, but they are not the only shootings that are happening. Mm -hmm. And while the Republican Party can talk about, oh, we need to harden our schools, first of all, you know, we're hearing from architects and, and school planners that that's not practical. Think yeah. about having to go through the equivalent of TSA every morning mm -hmm. to get into school. Like that's that's not practical in most contexts. But then also it, it distracts from the issue of, you know, we have too many guns in the hands of people who really should not have them. We have greater magazine capacity, greater firepower than we had. And there's a fascinating study out of the NYU School of Medicine that looks at what happened when the um, when the ban on assault rifles came in in 1994, you know, there's there were already a lot of assault rifles in people's hands. I think that that matches to a certain extent what we have now. Mm -hmm. There was a slow decline following that uh, implementation of that law in 94. Yep. What's so interesting is that 2004, the ban expires, the legislation expires, and the number of shootings mass mass casualty shootings explodes that's right so so i mean i think we have actually really good data um experiential data that shows what happens when you do and don't have uh sensible gun control which from my perspective includes uh control of assault rifles mm -hmm. as we had as we had before the other thing i'll say is you know there's a great piece in the new york times right now two former Supreme Court law clerks um, talking about their own experience in the in the development of the Heller decision. And they they were on opposite sides at that time. Um, but they both say, look, the Heller decision does not mean what y'all think it means. You mm -hmm. can still enact gun control. And, um, and and, you know, I felt the takeaway was so we should do that. Interesting points there. Algernon, let me uh, kind of dovetail off that as well. Uh, sticking with the Supreme Court here, it seems to me the chessboard, there's an obvious move here. If another state decides they're going to take a poke at this, it would obviously kick up to the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know, and, and is that the right way to go here to kind of get this ball moving, to get the Supremes to kind of look at this again? Or is the Supreme Court so loaded one way or the other? If you get my drift here, that might be not a good move either. But you see what I mean here. It, there's a way to get the ball moving here. It depends on which state's willing to do it. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the avenue that's going to bring us to practical solutions to right. the problem that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. um, the Second Amendment is a single sentence that makes explicit reference to militia service, and this is part of the argument that we've, we're sort of stuck in as far as uh, framing this as a discussion discussion about liberty, as opposed to the discussion about why is it a uniquely American problem that we have uh, endemic gun violence in public places. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm skeptical about any explanation that attributes one single solution or one single factor to that problem, of course. Um, but I do know that it is a uniquely American problem and that as long as the conversation is stuck on uh, the constitutional amendment that appears in our Bill of Rights, we're not talking about the actual problem that is leading to the deaths of masses of adults and children. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and uh, we were just discussing about the prospect of security features at schools and TSA lines and stuff like that. And, you know, this is sort of a palliative measure. It's an adaptation to madness. And, uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't address the root cause of that. And I'm just reminded of uh, standing in a TSA line at uh, Los Angeles International Airport, this long line of people that would make a pretty juicy target for somebody who uh, had intentions of wanting to inflict mass violence. Mm -hmm. Plus, uh, um, you know, this was at a time when they were removing liquids from people's luggage That's because right. it might contain liquid explosive, but then discarding it in a wastebasket right next to the line where everybody was pooled up. And so there's this aspect of where some of the solutions can become theatrical, mm -hmm. uh, so-called security theater. And I think as long as we're adapting to madness and not trying to uh, actually address the sickness itself, um, we're going to be spinning around this drain. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an interesting point there. There's a meme out there on Facebook, you know, from one failed shoe bomber attempt. We're all having to suffer with this shoe thing at the TSA where no one expects any shoe bomb to be a, a real thing. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Uh, Senator, interesting, the conversation around expanded mental health services for students has, thank goodness, picked up a bit, and that would likely require more counselors in schools. And our governor has already shown her support for educators, certainly increasing pay rates across the state. Uh, you know, should she or the legislature take action that specifically targets support staff like counselors if we have to go to a scheme where there's just more security? Because again, we're asking kids to do something. It just seems like we're not thinking about the mental health aspect of, of lining up and being searched or scanned or anything like that. What, what's your sense of that? Couple things, Jean. One is, I believe it was APS this week, extended the, the teacher level raises to counselors, nurses, and professionals like that. Mm -hmm. So I and I think that was extremely important. They do a tremendous job and we don't have enough of them either. But I think some maybe, and this is just a small piece, is we focus on I always hear, oh, well, after a shooting is, oh, we brought in all these counselors to talk to everybody. Why didn't we have all those counselors before the shooting? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, with what I've read about the young men who allegedly did the killing in Uvalde, there were all kinds of signs right. prior to right. the day of the shooting. Mm -hmm. And if we had, if we focused on, and it, again, it's just one piece of having counselors, teachers, training our teachers just to be aware, not to have to do anything, just in the same way that we ask them to report suspected child abuse. It doesn't do anything harm if a teacher or some a counselor, whoever, suspects that there is a problem right. and turn it over to the counselor, let the counselor talk to the student and move from there because the more and more I read about Uvalde, I just go, how did this particular incident happen? Right. There were many, many stop points along the way. Especially in a small community, thought, you know, it, yeah, you know uh, I'm sure they knew him. They knew what, we, what he was about from the grandma as well, who tragically was right. shot by him. And, and his yeah. life and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And there's just too much to me too much of the focus is okay we've had 21 people killed so now let's send in the counselors to take care of it mm -hmm. so i'd like to see our state legislature and as i said it's only one piece but i would like to see some preventive 
not just follow up. Right, right. Hey, I want to kick back to uh, uh, Algernon for a quick second, if you guys will indulge me here, because you, you wrote an interesting piece following the surrounding uh, topic. You wrote a piece about how we label these incidents, saying the term tragedy is a misnomer of sorts. Can you explain that? I, it, it kind of flesh out what you wrote as well. I thought it was really terrific. Yeah, just to be clear, it's not wrong to refer to a, uh, a you know a cataclysmic event as a tragedy. And in fact, I think that that can be psychologically healthy, emotionally healthy to really frame loss uh, yeah. in, in those terms. But uh, I, I'm concerned about our, our lack of vocabulary and the fact that, uh, you know, an earthquake might be called a tragedy. Uh, in the same quantity that a an incident that is either that, that has human origin um, can be can be framed using the same noun. And what I'm concerned about is that when we constantly speak of these tragedies, we these events as tragedies, this violence that may or may not be preventable, that is the result of human action. Mm -hmm. um, you know what, what what that happens is that we can start talking about it in a way that makes it seem like a natural event in the same way that an earthquake might be. And um, and that can lead to a kind of quietism. It can lead to a kind of, uh, uh, you know, there's a certain repetition to these things happening again that I think dominates the need to think of these things as situations requiring solutions, requiring urgent action. Uh, I have a 14-year-old son who is about to graduate from being homeschooled all his life to a public high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition to all the things that we're doing to prepare him for this, I've had to have conversations with him about um, that this is an, a feature of our world. And that it, it honestly, he's not, from his questions, he's not scared. He's baffled. Mm -hmm. He's just baffled at the at the lack of a will and the lack of a of a of a collective ethical response to this situation, which is what prompted that piece. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Prompted me to write that piece is that through the eyes of a teenager, um, it's just baffling that we can't arrive at a resolve to find an ethical solution or even just have serious conversations about it. Mm -hmm. Good point, sir. I'm glad we got that in. Thank you all for that difficult conversation. I appreciate that a bunch. We'll see you all back at the virtual roundtable in a little over 10 minutes. First, the perspective of an expert educator who spent decades in the classroom and now tries to elevate discussions surrounding education's biggest issues, including school violence. Here's producer Lou DeVizio. And we are very fortunate here in Albuquerque to have a real expert on the science of all of this here in our own backyard. He has done many things with us with Public Square as well as on New Mexico in Focus. He's an education consultant, an educator, of course, and an author. He's written several books, and his most recent one has to do with school violence. That is Franklin Shargel. He joined us to talk to our producer, Lou DeVizio, uh, about what the research he has found says about a lot of the things you're hearing in the headlines, again, in terms of Kevlar backpacks for students or metal detectors or one-way single entrance into schools, uh, just gun control in general. And, of course, mental health plays into all of these situations and some startling revelations from Franklin uh, in our schools. Uh, first, you're going to hear him talk a lot about how the leadership 
is flocking away from schools, superintendents, many of them on the way out during a crucial time, and that is, of course, impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic as well. This is a tough, tough time for educators in general, and this is one more wrinkle to it. And so he has combed through the research from the FBI, the CDC, the Secret Service, all of it, and put together this great uh, book, which you can find a link to in the description for this episode, but really wanted to have him whittle down the takeaways from that research in hopes of giving us all some insights on where we go from here and why we need to move from talk to action on all of this. So here now, Franklin Shargle and our producer, Lou DeVizio. My guest today is former teacher, now speaker, author, and educational consultant, Franklin Shargell. He lives in Albuquerque. He's written 14 books on education-related topics. That includes his latest, published earlier this year, Preventing School Violence, A User's Guide. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Shargell. Thank you for the invitation. Can you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself and your history in education? I was raised in New York City and spent all my professional life working in New York City high schools, starting first at Benjamin Franklin High School in Harlem, and then moving, went into the Army, and then came out, and Board of Education rewarded me, I think, for my service in the military, and sent me to one of the best high schools in the city of New York, James Madison High School. Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated from that school, Chuck Shumov graduated from that school, um, and the school was fine. I was there for 22 years, and then the school was integrated. The school was largely, prior to its integration, largely Jewish and Italian, and then they brought in um, African-American students, and we had a race riot. One student was shot and killed in the school, protecting his leather jacket. Um, my job at the time was um, a school counselor and, and coordinator of student activities. A principal called me and said, I'd like you at my school. I've been reading about what you've been doing because the incident garnered headlines um, in the city of New York. And I said, I'll transfer, but what I would like to do, I would like to um, I'd be an assistant principal. I would like to talk to teachers, but as an administrator. So I transferred to George Westinghouse Career and Technical High School, and a student was shot and paralyzed by an intruder, even though we had a metal detector at the front door uh, and school safety officers, school resource officers in the school. And while at Westinghouse, I developed 15 strategies which would stop children from dropping out of school. Westinghouse is a Title I school, which is all minority, um, and reduced the dropout rate, documented from 21.9 to 2.1%, and sent 72% of our first-generation high school graduates to post-secondary school, and developed 15 strategies. Uh, two governors here in New Mexico saw what I was doing. We also had a PBS special and asked me, uh, invited me here. And so I've been here 
for 23 years, almost 23 years. Sure, sure. So obviously with those two horrible stories, you do have some history, firsthand history with school violence. Yes. And how disheartening now is it to see that it's persisted for this long? And is that why you decided to write this book now? The answer is yes. Um, it's very dis I am extremely distraught about this whole incident in Texas. We've been here before. We are, unfortunately, my belief is we will be here again. That book too, th took three years of my life. The research came from uh, FBI, Secret Service, National Threat Assessment Agency, National Institutes of Health, um, and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as well as my personal experience. Uh, the book starts after the incident at Westinghouse, uh, where the student was paralyzed. A young lady was interviewed, and, and she said, I study in my bathtub at the night, at night, because it's the only place in my house that's bulletproof. We do not understand the challenges children face in their desire to get an education. And we have to deal with that. Absolutely. It, and you said that you have that research from the FBI and these other agencies. Right. In that research and after the horrifying event in Uvalde, did you find any clues to the question that a lot of people are asking now, which is why does this only seem to be happening in the United States? First of all, it's the availability of weapons. We have more weapons in the United States than we have people. Um, and that's an estimate from the FBI and Secret Service and National Threat Assessment. So we really don't have an exact count. And it's not spread evenly across the United States. The average gun, gun owner owns eight guns. And we just have too many guns in the country. And we also have far more weapons of war. The AR-15 is a weapon of war. It doesn't send out a bullet that, that's it, in the movies, it tumbles. It's a high velocity. And we're selling <clears throat> clips <clears throat> with 15 or 30, 30 rounds of ammunition. So within seconds, those bullets are spit out and tumble and rip bodies apart. And so I can imagine the horror of these parents having to bring, in Texas, having to bring DNA because their children have been shredded. Horrifying. Uh, and, you know, we've heard some rhetoric from both sides, uh, politically speaking, and from pro-gun activists and conservative factions, it's kind of the same stuff, like mitigation solutions, kind of. It, like arming teachers, that's one that's been thrown around. Mm. Um, on social media, we've seen ideas like giving kids Kevlar backpacks. Are these reactionary steps a viable solution? Absolutely not. First of all, uh, the average educator went into education because they love children and 70 to 80 percent are female. I would not want an elementary school teacher in a classroom with nine and ten-year-olds to have a weapon to be used. Second, uh, arming teachers 
I, when I got my driver's license, I had to take a driver's test. The killer in, in Texas simply walked into a store and purchased a weapon of war. And that's an insanity. You can't get a driver's license unless you take, take the test. When I went into the military, I had to take eight weeks of training learning how to fire a weapon and qualify for that weapon. That's not a requirement now. We need to start putting some restrictions, especially on weapons of war, so that somebody can't walk into a store and say, um, I would like a weapon, I've just turned 18, and have to wait until he's 21 in order to drive a car. I mean, there's, there's just an insanity. And, you know, something we've heard for years now in mass shootings, regardless of whether or not a school's been involved, is the good guy with a gun solves all mentality or theory. Uh, does your research support that that is valid? No, I think we're getting distorted evidence. Uh, first of all, um, we're preparing students for the wrong hiding of an intruder, with the exception of Sandy Hook, where another elementary school was involved in Connecticut. Uh, the students, most of the incidents are caused by people who are former students, students in the school, or, or students in other schools. They're not intruders, so we're not preparing the schools to deal with the realities of the situation, but the realities that we would like to. We are also spending a, a large sum of money. I've read various figures that it's in the billions of dollars across the United States to prepare schools for armament, um, putting in metal detectors and putting in, um, and metal detectors in schools don't work. There are too many entrances and exits. They're unlike airports or, or even supermarkets where there's basically one or two entrances. If you're in a high school that has 1,800 or 3,500 students, you have to have multiple exits and they have to be open. You cannot have them locked. You do have you know, power, th but you can't have school because if there's a fire, God forbid, those students will not get out. Also, part of what the book recommends is we should stop anyone who comes into a school with bulletproof book bags. That makes no sense at all. In fact, book bags should be made out of clear plastic. So if anyone is bringing a weapon into a school, whether it be a gun or a knife or a a bayonet or whatever, it would be more visible. We're never going to stop all people, from basically crazy people, from coming into school with weapons, but we can cut down on it if we get ahead of the curve and prevent it instead of dealing with the, the dramatization after it takes place. You know, in New Mexico, we've dealt with the horrifying reality of a school shooting recently. A uh, 13-year-old was shot or shot and killed a classmate at lunch at Washington Middle School last year. 
Um, in response, Democrats in the State House introduced legislation that would strengthen consequences for adults who fail to keep guns out of the hands of minors. Is that a, a necessary step? That's on the, on the right path, but we need to identify, as the book does, several steps before an event takes place. We need to provide enough mental health for youngsters. Um, we have school safety officers, and, and they're a vital necessity, especially in today's world, especially in the United States. But we also need mental health. We do not have an adequate number of school counselors. We do not have an adequate number of school psychologists. We have um, school nurses who travel from school to school. The average caseload of school counselors in the United States is one counselor to 450 students. That's providing crash counseling. There is a, not a sufficient number, and we're losing teachers. And this incident in Vivaldi is simply going to make it worse. I've spoken to teachers here in Albuquerque who are saying they're not going to go back. They are starting to submit their own papers for retirement leave. Uh, the Education Week reported that one out of every five school superintendents will be retiring in the next two years. That's school leadership. That is providing a vision. We do not have an adequate number of substitute teachers. We're asking teachers, in addition to teaching their caseload and developing lesson plans, to teach additional classes. Where we do not have an adequate number of special ed teachers, and we can't find special ed teachers who have got to have specialized training. Um, the future of America is in its classrooms, and. I, I believe that uh, chambers of commerce and politicians need to recognize that because the first question people ask when they move into a new community is, how are your schools? Now they're going to be asking, uh, how safe are your schools? Yeah, understood. And, you know, the New Mexico governor, she recently enacted in the legislature also the pay raises for teachers, hoping that that would encourage more uh, people to join the workforce. Is that, obviously that's a step in the right direction for keeping and retaining, but what else needs to change as far as our mentality of protecting our educators and valuing our educators? First of all, it was a good first step on part of our governor, but the reality is the governor, in order to get an adequate number of people in classrooms, warm body in classrooms, had to recruit the National Guard to go into classrooms and serve as teachers without adequate training. We are, so yes, raising the salary of, of educators is a vital part of that process, but we still, still have school aides in our schools who are making less money today than if they worked at Walmart or if they drove a truck. Now, trucks are also a vital necessity in our economy, especially with the situation we're now facing with COVID. But starting, Walmart is starting their truck drivers at $100,000. Teacher here now starts at $50,000, and school aides, as I pointed out, are making less than $15. 
as I pointed out, our businesses have got to get involved with our schools. Our chambers of commerce have got to realize that schools are a vital necessity to the economy of the city of Albuquerque and this, and this state. You mentioned mental health services uh, not too long ago. And, you know, as it seems to be, it's turned into an either or conversation for a lot of people, gun rights or gun control or mental health services. But that's not really the reality, is it? it, it they, those two can work together. Now, there's a section in the book which I call Child Anxiety, Stress, and Trauma. Everyone goes through anxiety, stress, and trauma. You and I both have gone through and continue to go through anxiety, stress, and trauma, and I'm sure COVID has, has increased that. But we have mechanisms to deal with it. A four, five, six, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, a child does not have those mechanisms and they go through anxiety, stress, and trauma. Prior to publication, I had two psychologists read that section and because I called that child PTSD and both of them came back and said, Franklin, you're absolutely right because the symptoms are identical. So we recognize PTSD among our vets who are returning from combat situations, but not recognizing it among our children. So, obviously, witnessing such a horrific event like in Uvalde would be massively traumatizing, especially given the, right. the situation of our children. What about kids who weren't involved, but still go to school, they see it on the news, it's in the back of their mind. Some kids, I would imagine, it's in the front of their mind. How do they cope with these things? Well, my recommendation is that parents need to speak to their children every day. They need to ask their children, how is your day going? I've gone out to restaurants where I'm sitting at a table and parents are sitting with their children and their children are on iPads or, or on games and there's no conversation going on. That's an insanity. The other thing is my recommendation is that parents, one, have to lock up, if they have weapons in the house, they have to lock those weapons up in a safe. And they have to have a separate safe for the bullets. Children are finding those weapons. Most of the, the weapons used in mass school shootings have, are not illegally obtained. They're, they're coming from families. The other thing is that um, parents need to take away electronics at night from children. There's, you know, they're playing games. They're playing violent games. They're sexting, they're, they're um, on TikTok, they're on. Children need to either sleep or read. Should not get involved in electronic games or watching television at night. And that has to be a parent responsibility. And I've spoken, or parents have spoken to me and say, you know, it's like taking away their right hand. Yes, but you need to do that. And my question then comes, well, who's paying for the phone? You or they are. It's not their phone, it's your phone. And parents need to bear some of the responsibility for what's taking place in the houses. We cannot 
shift all of that responsibility to the ed educational community and the law enforcement community. You mentioned earlier the proposals or suggestions to tighten security at schools. Some places have done it. Um, we've heard, seen online people saying, make it like airports, you know? And what would that do to a kid's psyche, to go to a place that's so sterilized and highly secure where you kind of, what, what would that do? Well, first of all, um, a, a number of these children in Vivaldi who have survived don't want to go back into the school because the memory, the trauma is so severe. And I've just heard a report that uh, they're talking about ripping down that school because of the horrible memories that it brings. But if we had a single entrance into a school with a metal detector, you're having 1,800 to 3,500 children arriving at one time. It's not like an airport where it's scattered. I have, I'm on, on travel next week. I have got to get there two hours before. Imagine how, you know, a child arriving at school at 8 o'clock in the morning class or a 7 o'clock in the morning class having to arrive two hours early and parents having to get them up early. I just... It's not going to happen in real effects. The other thing is metal detector. You have to have more than one metal detector at that school. You cannot have a single metal detector or the line into the school is, would just be horrendously long. Uh, shortly after the Uvalde shooting, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham released a statement calling for stricter gun control measures. Uh, New Mexico's GOP uh, chairman put out a statement saying gun control is not the answer. Their predictable responses, given their party affiliations, regardless of whether or not they sincerely feel that this is the right way to move forward, the general public does kind of see them as political responses. How do we take politics out of this discussion? Is it possible at this point? It's possible to do it, I believe, on a state level rather than on a federal level. This would leave a patchwork, unfortunately, that each state would have its own requirements and own, own regulations. But governments, uh, governors who are proactive as our governor is and gets ahead of the curve and preventing this rather than simply, and I don't want to get into the political situation, when, when this incident took place, a number of politicians said, we need to share thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers are not going to stop bullets. Thoughts and prayers don't work. Not in situations that are like this. My son sent me a list of, of school um, incidents that run six pages single space. And we can go back to Virginia Tech and we can go back to West Paducah, Kentucky. And I mean, the list continues to grow, and my belief is, and I hope I am wrong, I sincerely hope I'm wrong, that we are literally the Titanic heading toward that iceberg. We have not reached it yet. One of the fortunate things is that, and that, that's an oxymoron that has happened with Vivaldi, is that it has happened at the end of the school year, and students don't have the ability to go into a school and shoot it up. But I don't know what 
is in the minds of these sick people for next year. I don't think we're near the end. I think we're near the beginning. In Sweden, which does not have the gun mentality we have here, two teachers were stabbed to death by students. So it's spreading, not as, as um, uh, frequent as it is in this country. We lead the world, but it's the availability of weapons, the ability to just simply walk into a store and get them. So for New Mexico moving forward, you said by state, by state level would be the best bet to keep politics out of this. What could New Mexico do more? What have they done? What have we done as a state well? And what, what do you think we could do better? Well, at Westinghouse, as coordinator of student activity, I instituted, with the principal's permission, several things that we could do. Um, number one, I put them into the school what I call bully boxes. So if a student heard a rumor that there was going to be violence in the school or that a student was suggesting that they were going to shoot somebody, and that's what happened in Texas, they notified fellow students that something is going to happen. Unfortunately, there were no adults. It, the function of a COSA was to serve as this third year. I mean, so I would suggest that schools in New Mexico have a position in every school, elementary, middle, and high school, where there is a trusted member of the faculty who listens to children. And that trusted member should say, there's confidentiality. If you had a bully box where students could put notifications, there would be a lot of garbage in that. But the one time there was an action that could prevent the death of a child, of one child in school, is one child too many. And that's what we're being faced with on a regular basis. Um, so we need to prevent that from happening. We don't, we are a very reactive society. We react to things. Shouldn't be reacting, we should be proactively attempting to prevent this. We should get businesses involved in chambers of commerce and school. They have the most to gain and the most to lose by an adequate and excellent school system. And we need to make sure that schools are sanctuaries of safety before they become citadels of learning. We need to provide, um, and there's a line in the book which I take great pride in, our students, their parents, and our educators want, need, and deserve a safe learning environment. And until we have that, we cannot become the best nation in the world and become the best state in the United States in terms of education. Very good. Mr. Franklin Chargall, thanks for joining us today and we appreciate Thank your Thank you comments. for the invitation. Thank you for the time. Thank you.
It is almost election day here in New Mexico. Primary elections are on Tuesday, and of course you can early vote through tomorrow in many early voting locations, and that kicks off our line discussion that we call One More Thing. It's what we do to warm up for the show each week with our line opinion panelists and also a way to get to more topics we just don't have time for in the show. This one's got a little bit of everything, along with early voting and the primary elections. We're going to hear some talk about British royalty and a whole lot more. And again, this is something we love to be able to do on the podcast, bring you content we just don't have time for in the show if you tune in every Friday night at 7 p.m. or Sunday morning at 7 a.m. But we can bring it to you here, and we're excited to do that. So here is... The Line Opinion Panel once again with their One More Thing. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our Line Opinion Panelists joining me on Zoom. We're about to record the show for this week, but before we do, I'd like to do a little warm-up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds. Got some great guests with us this week for sure. One of our regulars, Sophie Martin, is with us. Sophie, I'm so curious. What's on your mind this week for your One More Thing? Mine is just a quick thing. It's Mm -hmm. a reminder that early voting for the primaries is going to end on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So get in there if you want to do your early voting. Saturday is your last chance. And then then the primary election day, you know, the primary day is going to be Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So um, make your plans if you haven't done one or the other. And, of course, New Mexico is still, you know, you're you're primarying, you're registered, you're registered Democrat, you're registered Republican, et cetera. Um, but there are some important races. And as always in New Mexico, there is a decent probability, a decent likelihood that your vote in the primary is the vote. Um, because not all of these races are as competitive as, right. you know, might be might be assumed. Yep. So Hey, talk about I'm, the, the yeah. we've got DTS in the game in primaries now, declined the state. It's a very interesting turn of events, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Um I, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that how that ends up working out. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm have a lot on that yet. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that. It's going to be interesting. The the, the follow up is going to be very interesting to see if it had any yeah. impact on certain races. That's for sure. Yeah, former definitely. former state senator Diane Snyder is with us. Always good to have Hi. Ms. Snyder. Good to see you. What's your one more thing this week? Well, do you remember you, Gene? You and I are uh, roughly the same age. I love but, it. Mm-hmm. Do you remember having a Viewmaster? It was that little bitty yes. thing that looked like binoculars, and you put a round disc in, and it had little uh, slides in it, mm-hmm. and you punched it and pulled it and pulled it. Well, the uh, we had one as kids, and the very first set, because there were two, that my mom got for us was the coronation of Elizabeth II. Oh, no kidding. So ah, from ah. that day forward, I have been enraptured with that wonderful young woman because she was 25 years old at the time. Wow. In just a tiny little personal connection, she and my mother are the same age. Mm-hmm. My daddy and Prince Philip are exactly born in the same year. And I'm 16 hours older than Prince Charles. So, <laughs> So we kind of feel like we have some connection there. Mm -hmm. But you think about being on the throne for 70 years. Now, we've got two or three quick numbers. She's met 13 of the last 14 U.S. presidents. Only only LBJ, and I don't know what that story is, but it should be fun to know. But he wasn't in very long. Well, I guess so. Anyway, Mm -hmm. she's met five popes and been to, to Rome to see them, and one of them came to her. 
She's had 14 prime ministers and Churchill twice. So you think in terms of, and she may have another one soon, the way things are going right now, so for Mr. Johnson. Right. Um, I, and I look at this and all this celebration, and I was watching this morning, the, there's the queen, and you know, we all know she's had some health issues, and she is standing in the middle of that balcony Charles and Camilla are to one side and Kate and William are to the other with their three little kids. Well, guess who took the show this morning? The Queen and Prince Louis, who's four years old. He was <laughs> next to the Queen. He kept asking her questions and she'd point things out to him. They had this ongoing conversation almost the whole time. And it was just amazing to watch this, seeing how old she is. 96 mm -hmm. and he's four and yet there was a connection and he's of course being trained to be. he won't be king unless something should happen to a number of his brother and sister but i watched this and i was just amazed to see that kind of history mm -hmm. and we all know about the the revolutionary war how we once were british colonies and how we fought the, that was old george the third though we fought with them and became an independent country. But the thing that we forget most often, I think, is how our law looks to England or vice versa. And the United States law in every state except Louisiana has its foundation in British common law. Mm -hmm. Louisiana is the Napoleonic Code because they were owned by France for so long. But it's fascinating to me that we still have, they are now today in this time, having gone from the Revolutionary War where we were arch enemies to being our best uh, friends, uh, world friend. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I've enjoyed watching this and seeing this history as it's gone along and the role she's played and the role family has played. And as we know, they don't, they're a constitutional monarchy, so they don't write or, or make the laws, parliament does. But it's just fascinating to me. And I hope people, the uh, big jubilee is going, started today and will go through Sunday. And I hope that everybody will take an opportunity to just take a quick peek at it because the pageantry, we don't have that kind of thing. Right. And I have to give you one little note, mm -hmm. 70 years on the throne and she's never had a negative, uh, never, or, or a moral lapse, shall we say. Can't say that for all of her children, but she has <laughs> never had a moral lapse. Right. And 70 years is a long time to to be the person that everybody's looking at. So anyway, here's to the queen. And I know it won't be another 70 years, but hopefully we'll have a couple more. That's, so. very well, that's very well put, that's very interesting. It is kind of fascinating, and it's interesting how many Americans are fascinated by the monarchy, how mm -hmm. it, you know what I mean? It's a very interesting thing to watch from the outside, and I know a lot of UK folks are, you know, they roll their eyes a little bit, but that's their system. And mm -hmm. I appreciate your point that there's always an echo, isn't there, in world mm -hmm. politics and everything else. It doesn't just go away just because we won the Revolutionary War. It just, you know, they're, a part, they're a part of us whether we want to you know, admit it or not here in, here in the, uh, you know, the United States. I appreciate that. That's actually really cool the way you put that. Very nice. Hey, Algernon Damas is with us, investigative and enterprise reporter at the Las Cruces Sun News. Always great to have you with us. What's your one more thing this week, my friend? 
You know, last week I attended a ribbon cutting ceremony for the Southwest Counseling Center. Mm -hmm. This is one of the 15 providers that was abruptly shut down nine years ago when they were accused of Medicaid fraud under the uh, Governor Susana Martinez administration and were later exonerated of uh, of Medicaid fraud. Mm -hmm. They actually reopened for services a year ago, but they postponed a, a celebration for a year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And even last week, they had everybody outside rather than bringing them inside. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about this is, is the sort of sign of, of a, a, a glimmer of recovery. Three of the providers affected by this shutdown down that that affected tens of thousands of New Mexicans and was a public health uh, catastrophe. Um, three of these providers merged underneath Southwest Counseling Center's name. They're back in downtown Las Cruces. They have other locations as well. And they actually seem to be on a trajectory to serve even more people than they were nine years ago, partly because of the merger, partly because of advances in telemedicine, telehealth, growing acceptance of talking to someone via video conference. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a, a little bit of a, of a flower emerging from some rubble there. Um, and uh, hopefully that this is a, a, a sign of more people in some of the remotest parts of our state who are suffering in isolation are getting the care that they need and deserve. That warms my heart to hear this <laughs> because sometimes, you know, you forget how traumatic that was. It really had repercussions that actually ended up here in Albuquerque being felt because a lot of folks who weren't getting served somehow ended up on up here. You know what I mean? The big city, sort of the Emerald City, that kind of a thing. Oh my gosh, it was terrible. Nine years ago, isn't that amazing? It seems like just yesterday. That's really good to hear that though, that's for sure. Thank you for that report in on that. Have to wrap that up there. Thanks for joining us. Don't miss our show this week when we dive into gun control debate after those horrific events in Nivalde, Texas. And we'll discuss the revelation that the Calf Canyon fire was also started by the remnants of a prescribed burn. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here in New Mexico PBS. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Do want to make you aware of our sister podcast, Growing Forward. That's all about cannabis and the cannabis industry here in New Mexico. Collaboration between ourselves, New Mexico Political Report, and KUNM Radio. Hosts are Andy Lyman of Political Report and Megan Camrick of KUNM. And of course, a correspondent here with us at New Mexico PBS as well. We have a new episode that just came out this week in season four, and it has to do with risk and reward. So we talked on uh, one of our other recent episodes all about the challenges of banking and financial uh, situation and getting into the cannabis industry where the actual product is something that's still federally illegal. So that has all sorts of implications on how you can bank and especially how you can get those startup loans and capital to get your business up and off the ground. We've got some follow-ups to that, as well as things like insurance and how you deal with risk assessment in this industry and be able to have that security of insurance. Also exciting news that there is a local bank here in New Mexico that is dipping their toe in the water of lending to cannabis business owners. So lots of great information in that episode for you. And you can find Growing Forward wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you name it. Just search for Growing Forward Cannabis in New Mexico. 
We will have another new episode coming out soon, but wanted to make you aware of that. Subscribe if you don't already. Leave us a review there or here on this podcast. It really does help us with our efforts here and what we are trying to do. But as always, we so appreciate you tuning in and be safe, be healthy. We'll be back again soon.